Welcome to BC's Corner, episode 11. Religious liberty is taught to be one of the founding bedrocks of our nation. The role of religion, though, in public life is largely in question, as a majority of Americans believe that faith and its institutions are losing their influence on the continued development of society. This line of thought prompts many questions. What do you consider religion to be? How do you differ between religiosity and spirituality? What beliefs should be given precedence over others? And how do these institutions positively contribute to society's development? It is impossible to discover the answers to these questions in one conversation with one individual. But as we venture to explore the wider idea of faith and culture ongoing, I hope to share the perspectives of many on the question of faith from their chosen belief system. My guest today, Lola Wright, has been featured on stages around the world as a speaker, coach, and vocalist, including TEDx, Chicago Ideas, Harvard Divinity School, Agape International Spiritual Center, and the Havana Jazz Festival. Her path has included stops at some of the world's leading global financial institutions and technology startups, training in several well-respected coaching methodologies, and experience as an entrepreneur, all culminating in her desire to challenge people to find their fierce and loving selves. Lola loves nothing more than creating unexpected encounters that shake up what you thought you knew. This includes more than 300 live events since 2014, including a sold-out monthly experience that brought together some of the country's most prolific artists and thinkers. She has also spent thousands of hours consulting with and coaching teams and individuals in their pursuit of something greater. An ordained minister with the gift for weaving together the mystical and material, Lola served for many years as CEO of Bodhi Center, an organization committed to personal transformation, collective awakening, conscious activism, and community building. Her work at Bodhi followed nearly two decades in the financial services and real estate industries, experience that has shaped her ability to authentically connect with executives, managers, and teams. The Reverend Lola Wright is joining us today to add her studied perspective to this conversation. Let's dive in with Reverend Lola Wright. You led a multi-generational, multi-racial, queer-affirming community Mm -hmm. here in Chicago. That was the Bodhi Center. You would do these monthly events where you would take over city winery and other venues. And I mean, you had all types of people coming in to be guest artists, guest speakers. I heard you even sang a little bit. Donald Lawrence even came in, who's a multi-Grammy award-winning gospel artist that you had come in for these. And in 2020, when everyone shifted and transitioned, that chapter for you ultimately came to an end. But what I've always thought is that that community that you built, it still exists within you, Lola Wright, the person, uh, Reverend Lola Wright. And you're a white woman. But you seem to attract this diverse range of not just racial, sexual identity, but also ideology. Can Mm -hmm. you speak to how that became your orbit? Yeah. I mean, I think that to a large extent, we attract who we are. And so Bodhi was this beautiful tapestry of humanity that represented me in many ways. And so it was this collection of human beings that all served as reflections and mirrors for one another. I think that one of the ways we really trap ourselves is 
over identifying with a few labels. Most of us are these very complex, dynamic, nuanced creatures, and we've bought into these oversimplified identities. Like who you are is a boom, boom, boom. And it's like, well, no, I mean, I am many things. I am culturally Irish Catholic. I don't identify as religious. Let's just stop there. So you're culturally Irish Catholic, but you don't identify religiously with Catholicism. Like that's just one little part of me, but there's a lot being said there. You know, I identify as a white woman. I identify as a mother. I identify as a wife. I identify as a leader. I identify as a radical. I identify as a feminist. I identify as a womanist. I don't, you know, it's like so many layers. And I had the great privilege of leading this community that was very generous in embracing the multifacets of me. You coming from an Irish Catholic background, if I have it right, your father was one of nine or six siblings, the oldest. Yeah, my my dad was the oldest of six and my mom was the oldest of nine. And you on your father's side being the oldest grandchild of this heap of grandchildren and you lived in the world understanding it as, you know, that's an, an Irish Catholic background, enjoying some of the finer things in life. Mm -hmm. And then you started to be exposed to nuance. You talk about in your TED Talk, your uncle and him passing (laughs) of AIDS in Los Angeles and you crawling into bed with him. You talk about your mother ultimately leaving your father because she ended up having a same-sex relationship. What was that awakening like when you realized that there are so many nuances and it's not them, it's me too? Yeah, I mean, I'm so grateful for the opportunity to have witnessed the fragility of life through my uncle's transition. I mean, just as a sidebar, I just think we are really robbed culturally today of not experiencing death in this human form. It's really, we are all dying and, you know, we rob ourselves of understanding the mystical nature and the mysterious nature of life when we don't witness that. So I remember being very in awe of that experience. I also remember it was like the mid 80s, mid to late 80s. And, you know, we thought that AIDS lived on toilet seats, you know, (laughs) like it was a crazy, crazy time. So there's a lot of fear and it was deeply formative for me. Yeah. My mom left my dad for a woman in 1992 and People didn't know how to understand her other than calling her a lesbian. And, you know, she was always very comfortable saying, yeah, I don't identify as a lesbian. I just fall in love with human beings. Now, Mm. in 2023, we would call her pansexual, but that language didn't exist back then. (laughs) So it just, I think it granted me a lot of permission in many ways. And then I took on an identity as sort of a my own version of a radical in a very conservative and pretty uptight community as a form of safety. You know, Bishop Yvette Flunder talks a lot about this, this idea of sort of embracing your uniqueness, embracing your differentness, embracing your exile. Like I felt exiled from my community because I didn't fit into a neat box. I was a pretty outspoken young woman. I was not petite physically. I had a mom who had left her dad for a woman. Like 
my very being felt problematic in my culture and in my society. And so it was like, for my very own survival, I actually just had to embrace it. (laughs) It It's like, it's clearly not going to be loved and appreciated in the world at large. So I better love and appreciate it. Otherwise, I'm in hot water. I had a very similar experience to that with coming to terms with my own sexuality, which isn't a big deal, but in the scope of my life and in the way that I was raised, it was a big deal because there was a lot of denial of who I was as an individual that really leads to some bad psychological issues, bad spiritual issues, because you're living a lie. And that journey of living a lie and portraying a standard that you're not is self-destructive. And so for you to live this life of one thing existing, one thing being true for others, but you being the exception for a time, I think that's carried on even to the work that you do today. I mean, you're a reverend, you're an ordained minister, ordained in new thought, in ancient Mm -hmm. wisdom. 30 years ago, it was very taboo for women to be preachers. It's much more uh, of a common thing today. In your words, because I understand religion from a certain vernacular, and so many people do, depending on your reformation, your denomination, whether you're Catholic, whether you're Protestant, or one of the many flavors of Christianity that exist, if you're Jewish, Buddhist, how would you define your reformation? Yeah, I mean, I would say that I live at the intersection of science, religion, and philosophy. I really see the places in which those three intersect. I'm deeply grateful for the Catholic roots that I was raised with. It formed me at like a very basic moral level. I really got the lesson of do unto others as you would have done unto you. And that guides me. I also come from a family that had a a pretty strong orientation to matters of justice. And that has informed me. And I had some fundamental disagreements with the institution of Catholicism. And then I was exposed to Black liberation theology and philosophy by way of hip-hop in the early to mid-90s. I really say my spiritual awakening occurred as a result of the Black hip-hop community in Chicago. There were some very important and influential human beings in Chicago that awakened me to a whole new and expanded idea of knowledge of self, of this universe. And I'm forever grateful for that. You know, I oftentimes like, I think these days people will read something like Deepak Chopra or Eckhart Tolle and they'll be like, oh, or Gabrielle Bernstein. And it's like, oh my gosh, the law of attraction. And it's like, yeah, all that stuff's amazing and wonderful and read it and ingest it. And, you know, it's rooted in deep, deep mysticism of many of the great, great world traditions. And it would be inaccurate and unfair for me to give Eckhart Tolle props and for me to not give Reginald Jolly, who is from the deep west side of Chicago and really informed my critical thinking from the age of 16 on. Without him, I wouldn't be who I am today. And so from the perspective of Christianity, you know, the the chosen deity, the chosen individual or energy essence that that we hold supreme, we hold in the form of God. And then you have the Son, Jesus, and then you have the Holy Spirit. In your Reformation, is there a chosen deity or how do you acknowledge the thought of something bigger than us? 
Yeah. So I believe that there's a power and presence for good in this vast and holy universe that it expresses in, through, and as all things. I believe that the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost are the framework that a particular tradition tried to make sense of life through. The triune nature of life or the threefold nature of life can actually be found in many great world traditions. We are most familiar with it in the Western world through the lens of Christianity, but there are many, many traditions that will talk about the threefold nature of existence. So I use that framework. I don't call it Father, Son, and Holy Ghost or Holy Spirit. For me, I talk about it as spirit, soul, and body. So I do believe in the presence of the infinite, and we can call that God, life, spirit, the infinite, the eternal. It doesn't occur for me as an anthropomorphic figure, like it is not a Santa Claus in the sky. And I think that that's really, as much as we deconstruct our own programming and sort of religious indoctrination, this externalized presence that sort of holds the puppet strings of your life is still really, really running people at a very deep level. So for me, the presence of the infinite, of God, of spirit is both nearer than my breath and vaster than my being. So it is both within me and beyond me. And I dance with that. I dance with that very frequently. I really think it's deeply important to not over-identify with our humanity. I think we can oftentimes get so caught up in a literal interpretation of reality or text or any number of things that it creates like a stuckness. You are this mystical presence. We call you Brian. We call me Lola. But you and I and I believe every human being on the planet, if they're honest, have had glimmers or moments of something that's like, you know, whether it's like holding a small child's hand or, you know, the moment you encounter nature in a particular way, what is that? And so when we try to box it in and limit it to this very, very specific ideology or dogma or doctrine, It's really just a control game that comes from our own fear, our need to understand. And I just think the less we understand, that's okay. So you kind of exist in, I would say, vast is the right word for it, this vast array of opportunities, but not so much ascribing to more of a legalistic form of doctrine. Like when you say there's less of a focus on self and criticizing oneself and more being open to the possibilities of life in the Christian context, I would say sin. That's not Mm -hmm. something that is a, you, there's a heavy emphasis on. Would that be correct? The context for sin that I use is like making a mistake or missing the mark. You know, it doesn't have this heavy hand, this sort of moral implication. You know, I fundamentally believe that wholeness is your name and is your nature. I don't believe that you are fundamentally flawed, wounded, or broken. I do not believe that you need to be saved in a sense. I believe that you are the source of your own salvation. And I don't mean that at the level of your ego or your identity. Metaphysically, I am is your spiritual name and nature. So when Jesus said, I am the way, he wasn't meaning at the level of the personality. He wasn't like, I'm the guy, Jesus, me, 
I'm it. He was saying, I am, yeah, this infinite presence, your spiritual name and nature. And we have unfortunately used functions like religion and institution to control people and to manipulate and to maintain power. And there are ways in which that intersects with race and class and gender and all sorts of things. And so it is good strategy if the game you're playing is to control people. It is good strategy to create a figurehead that people sort of turn themselves over to. I want to underscore that that is different than the beautiful, exquisite, and necessary practice of surrender. I'm not saying that there isn't great value in surrendering to something greater than my human limitations or sense of self. And I think that people really put themselves in precarious positions when they outsource all of their good, all of their authority, all of their wisdom to some doctrine. A very good point to make sure that there is a distinction in surrender, because there are those times when you just lift up your hands and you say, I don't know what's going on, but I can pray. Or I don't know people who don't even, you know, say they are agnostic or atheist. They don't believe in God, but they'll be like, oh, I'm praying for you if something truly tragic happens because it goes beyond our means. But then there's the person that's saying, I'm praying the door will open, but all you have to do is get up and open the door. And so I think that's an important distinction. When you talk about the dynamic of power, specifically in religious institutions, you know, we can do a little mini history lesson because the reason we're on this continent right now, one of the paramount reasons that we're told that settlers came to America was because of religious freedom. We Mm -hmm. don't want the Catholic Church, we don't want the Church of England to have dominance here. With the Catholic Church that was holding up the Holy Roman Emperor and then the mm-hmm. Pope, and then they had a civil war, and then we had two popes for a time, and now we have one singular pope. And it was less of a spiritual position and more of a political position in yes. the continent of Europe. It basically was the European Union, if I could be so bold, in that day. You yes. then look at the Church of England, which was England saying, no, we want our dominance away from you. You have the Church of Scotland. You have these really ancient bodies of, I wouldn't say believers, but these ancient institutions which have held together a social fabric, social continuity. And I say social continuity because I think we're talking less about actual community building and higher living, and we're talking more to the containment of society, the control Mm -hmm. of society, and more religious ideology. Now we find ourselves in America where every uh, faith tradition is welcome, Depending on, you know, what community you're in, you may feel that a little differently, but it's definitely a lot more widely accepted. And we'll get to that just a little bit more. But when you look at the faith tradition that has attempted dominance in this country to withhold it, even though it legally doesn't have it, like the Church of England or the Catholic Church did at the time, we find that it is a form of white evangelical Christianity And it's been weaponized in so many ways. Specifically right now, we're seeing it in the fight for trans rights. We're seeing it in the Mm -hmm. fight against the queer community. We're seeing it in a fight against drag queens that drag queens aren't even fighting. They're just doing their jobs. How, in a sense, do you conceptualize religiosity? How would you define religion? Because you stated that you're not religious, you're spiritual. Could Mm -hmm. you put that into words from your perspective? Yeah. I mean, I have sort of a love-hate relationship with the word spiritual because I feel like it's come to mean nothing. And so 
I am not religious. And the closest thing that I am in sort of common culture would be to say I'm spiritual. I subscribe to a philosophy of oneness, which essentially means that all of existence is interconnected, that there's only one thing happening here, and it's an illusion and a delusion that we are separate. I believe in the eternal nature of life. I believe that there is an animating presence that is pressing through my physical body and that the spirit of life within me never dies. This body may lay itself down, but who I am is not this body. You know, so that's like, you know, a little bit of context around sort of how I make sense of reality. Statistically, my understanding, and you can get really great information through the Fellowship of Affirming Ministries, which is led by Bishop Yvette Flunder, the white evangelical movement in the United States is losing. And in fact, they're making far better headway on the continent of Asia and the continent of Africa because they are not having great success in North America. So I think that sometimes it looks like they're more successful than they are in the United States. That's right. And so I think it's important to, to just note that. Yeah, in the case of the Fellowship of Affirming Ministries, I mean, they are really on the ground on the continent of Africa and different specific countries really trying to protect specifically queer-identified people from the violence of religious zealots. And so it's actually quite dangerous what these movements are attempting to do. Yeah. So I think that so much of it, it's like threading a needle because I'm very cautious not to give too much attention to the absurdity of drama in the United States sort of headlines, because I I think that we can sometimes almost perpetuate it. I think it's great to be aware. Yeah, I think it's critical to be aware. And what I have observed is that no matter what side of like the political spectrum you're on, if you are driven by adrenaline and righteousness, it is not of service. And so, you know, the Buddhist- Say that again. Us, Wait, say that again. Yeah. So no matter where you are on the political spectrum, if you are driven by adrenaline and righteousness, you are not of service. And so- I may, like, I identify as as a leftist, perhaps we would say. Maybe perhaps you would call me a progressive. I actually think I'm a little more radical, but even the term radical has been so misused that it's like I'm so cautious to even use that. I had someone Um, say to me, the progressive movement has chosen the right name for their movement because who wants to say they're against progress? Whenever someone says they're progressive, it's hard for me to frame that in a negative light. But there is always this push, you know, whatever side you're on to make the other side seem like they're crazy. Go ahead. Continue. Yeah. I mean, I just have seen people who I know and love who theoretically I identify with ideologically. I perceive the world in many ways similarly, and I find their tactics and their means to be counterproductive. So I did an Instagram reel when things were unfolding with Roe v. Wade. And my guidance to people was like, do not exhaust yourself. If you get yourself so wound up and so angry, that is like very short-lived movement making. It actually doesn't 
make a difference. It just gives you a hit of adrenaline so that you feel like you've really been up to something and it doesn't actually change anything. So, you know, it's like, we've all heard the language, like slow and steady wins the race. And I realize that that requires a level of patience, but that also requires a level of maturity. And so our headlines will lead us to believe that life is existing in these very binary terms, good, bad, right, wrong, you know, Democrat, Republican, black, white, gay, straight, you know, it's a trap. It's a trap. And in the city of Chicago, we, we just had our mayoral, you know, primary, and aldermanic yeah. primary. And I see it there too. I was talking to a good friend recently and, you know, he's talking about this group versus that group. And Lori Lightfoot's camp versus the police and Lori Lightfoot. I mean, it's just like, oh my gosh, it's all the same drama. And we have a responsibility to interrupt that drama and to look for ways that we can work together. The most powerful thing about what the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King was attempting to do was to create a multiracial, multicultural coalition, the poor people's campaign. And it was really rooted in our similarities, not so much emphasis on, you know, our divide. And that can sound sort of cliche and like, oh, no. Yeah, it's really true. It's like, I really am devoted to seeing the ways that we are aligned versus the ways that we are opposed. If I focus on the ways we are opposed, very little moves forward. How have you cultivated your principles, but how have you stayed planted in those as you've existed in a world where we're seeing Black men get gunned down? And it is portrayed in a sensationalized way, but as a mother to Black children, you know that Mm -hmm. it's very real and you know Mm -hmm. that reality. How have you remained committed to the long game even in those circumstances when it's very close to home and personal for you? Yeah. I mean, I have to have my own spiritual practice of deep, deep trust in the presence of good that transcends this world of form. Like I have to go there because if I focus on the world of form, I'll feel very discouraged. I have to go higher or wider or deeper or vaster, whatever language you want to use. I have to root in myself. There's a power and presence for good in this vast and holy universe. It is the nature of who I am and it amplifies and animates through every being on this planet. And so I will imagine my six foot five son who is mixed race black. And, you know, I will literally just douse him in protection, in love, in peace. May he be honored. May he be protected. So that is like, That's what I do just for my own nervous system, you know? I'm also very grateful he's in the city of London right now because guns aren't really a thing there. They have knife fights still. And so that actually gives me some solace, some peace, some calm in my body and in my being, if I'm being very honest. But I have spent many, many, you know, when my son was in high school, it was very unnerving when he would go out at night and just imagining what could happen. And then constantly bringing my awareness back to, I must believe that there is something. I mean, I fundamentally believe that there is the good that has no opposite and that the nature of Mm. human beings is good and that it is only 
through like the perversion of humanity through fear that that gets forgotten or lost. And so it is my responsibility to as best I can. And I fall down all the time when I interact with people, connect with them at their highest level. I am here to see the presence of God, of good, of love, of peace, of joy, of freedom, of abundance in you. That's where I want to connect. So believing in good without an opposite, is it ignoring the presence of evil or just not acknowledging it? I believe that evil is manufactured in the human experience. I don't believe that it is absolutely or ultimately real. I believe that in this dimension of reality, when we get connected to fear, when we forget our oneness with the divine, then we act out inside of our ego or our fear or our identity. And that is when we activate or mobilize or act out what we would call evil. But I don't believe that evil is absolutely real. I hear you. I wanted you to speak to your definition of religion, and you've spoken to your definition of spirituality, because thanks to the survey Center on American Life, it's shown that each generation, and you've spoken on this before, has become less and less religiously affiliated. You know, 34% of Gen Z are religiously unaffiliated. Millennials at 29%, Gen X at 25%, 18% for baby boomers, and the silent generation at 9%. Research has also inferred that the attitude of drifting from religious affiliations has less to do with a new generation having a new attitude, because we often hear that. And I think it's a bit condescending just to be like, oh, you're you're less religiously affiliated because you're just out there thinking you can do everything on your own and you don't need tradition. But it's more to do for the different lifestyles. You know, the silent generation to Gen Z are living completely different lifestyles to each other, mm-hmm. as are the baby boomers, as are Gen X. And the experiences that you have in each of those generational trends impacts the way that you see the world. But mm-hmm. also, I think that it can be attributed to what we are seeing religious institutions not do and do in times like these. You were speaking to Bishop of that Flunders Fellowship, which is actively has been do- actively doing the work, specifically headquartered in San Francisco, but around the world for mm-hmm. so many years. How would you define the work that is ascribed to your calling in this world? Yeah, it's tricky, honestly. I'm sort of at a crossroads myself in that I led a community before we did our monthly experience at City Winery and Lincoln Hall and Shubas and all that kind of stuff. We, for years, for 15 years, had a Sunday experience. We had a Sunday celebration service and For seven years, I was the senior minister of that experience. And we saw attendance get affected. We saw people not show up reliably or regularly. And so we pivoted from that weekly experience as a response to what we believed was needed. Now, the challenge is that people don't want to make a commitment to a weekly experience necessarily. And yet I think we are living in the challenge of the void of a structure. Mm. So if religion, as we've known it, isn't the structure, then what is the structure? I think human beings really, really thrive on structure. You know, it's like you and I both like to work out and it's like, well, I can't just work out once, I have to actually have a structure. And for me, 
who has like a fair amount of resistance to working out as a general statement, I have to have a personal trainer come to my house two days a week. And I go to a group tennis class one day a week. And hopefully I do one more time a week where I move my body because these days we're extremely sedentary sitting in chairs and we have like glute amnesia, for example. Like, so we understand that in sort of an exercise context or a workout context or a health and wellness context. But, you know, I think therapy is something that people have sort of leaned into as an alternative to religion. And I think that makes sense in some ways, but there's a lot you don't get in therapy. You don't get an ecstatic experience in therapy. You don't get, you know, like the power of music in a session with a therapist. You don't get the power of community. So I am trying to figure this out, to be totally honest, because I'm aware that people desire something. They need something and they want something, and they simultaneously don't want to commit to anything. And so this is the great quandary that we find ourselves in. And, you know, I think it's sort of like the breakdown before the breakthrough, like things are sort of deconstructing, but we haven't reconstructed something yet. So I don't know what the future holds as it relates to this. I suspect it will look more like micro communities versus like big mega churches. I mean, I think those days are over. That's interesting you say that. So I belong to, as you probably know, I belong to Fellowship uh, Missionary Baptist Church here in Chicago. And I've been going, I joined that church this past year, and I never thought that I would actually join the role of a church. I'm, I'm comfortable saying that on my podcast, specifically with my journey as a queer man, because many churches are not queer affirming. They've been queer inviting, but not necessarily queer affirming where you will have your wedding there. And I got to the point where it was like, I'm comfortable going to the club every single weekend. And there are people there that I don't like doing things that I don't like. And I'm okay being in those environments constantly. I think I can go to the church and have a good time and get what I need and contribute and serve and see older Black people who look like my Nana, my Papa, my aunties, and still have that sense of community specifically. Mm. And as you stated, you know, Chicago being one of the most segregated cities that you can possibly live in. But I desire that. But I say that to that note of, this church, I believe it could probably fit 650, 700 on a good Sunday with every seat filled. And I have to get there an hour and a half early just to get a seat because wow. of the wave. And so I'm curious too of the wave of if we're going to see church attendance rise, because of course no one was going to church during the pandemic because they were all closed. But what does that look like? And I typically, I was, I didn't go for, for years. I would just tune in if I wanted to tune in to hear a message. I'm related to way too many pastors. And so I can get a word if I want a word, mm-hmm. uh, but I, <laughs> but I wasn't going in person anywhere. And I found myself back into that, that habit now. And I've had people curious of it, of like, oh, can I come? Can I come? And of course the invitation is yes. And they're like, what can I expect? And I'm like a lot of black people and some good singing, a really good message that'll really help give you direction as you connect with your higher self, connect with the Holy Spirit and go on this life's journey. And also, Lola, I have to say that for those listening, it may sound like it's like, you guys sound like you uh, agree on a lot and it's because we do, but there's Mm -hmm. different language that's been put to some Mm -hmm. of the same principles because they're ancient principles. And you're not my enemy by any means. I actually jokingly thought to myself, because I posted a clip of someone singing yesterday. I was like, you know who would be fun to sit by in church? I said, Mm -hmm. Reverend Lola Wright would be a good neighbor to have in church. Because I feel like we would have 
just a really good time together. I will go with you anytime. I would love that. I would love to go with you. That'd be a good time. And as I mentioned before, you know, we're dealing with generations who have grown up extremely differently, you know, musically, culturally, technologically. And we've made tremendous strides to inherent evangelism, I guess, that, that used to no longer exist. Like, you know, you can go on your phone and you can watch a service. Access to information has increased. Exposure has increased. But we're still, like you said, in this tug of war of what is going to be the future. And I mentioned before with, you know, being in a community that is anti-homophobic, but isn't 100% queer affirming, you are queer affirming, you know, your, mm-hmm. your fellowship, the churches that you would attend, the institutions that you would affiliate with are. Why mm-hmm. do you think that is so important in moving the needle forward? Yeah, I mean, I think that it is a fundamental problem to theologically articulate that someone's self-expression is flawed. So whether that's at the level of identity or not. So like I bow deeply to the Christian path. I bow deeply to the Muslim path, to the Jewish path, like, and specifically as it relates to Christianity, which is the tradition that I am most familiar with by virtue of culture, the culture I grew up in. I think you have to ask yourself, like, do you fundamentally believe that human beings are broken, wounded, flawed, or are they whole? Like that to me is like, we got to start there. And again, it doesn't mean, I think you're really wise. Like, can I take what I like and leave the rest? You know, (laughs) you know, for people who are familiar with the 12 step program, like that's a very, very go to meetings, take what you like and leave the rest. It's a little bit naive to think that you're going to love everything everywhere all the time. And, you know, I think you're wise to not like throw the baby out with the bathwater, so to speak. And I think it's a really important theological inquiry. Like, are you whole or Mm. are you broken? And I have counseled and supported thousands of people that have been, I would say, deeply, deeply impacted by the context that who they are is fundamentally flawed. I was just with a woman recently. I am watching the havoc that that context has reaped in her life. And this is a woman that's brilliant and has studied, was a leader in a church and, you know, like deep, deep roots, father, a pastor. And at the end of the day, where we keep bumping up is she cannot get beyond the notion that she is wounded. And I have great issue with that context as being like a fundamental context in Christianity. I don't think it serves human beings. And I think it is a, it is a violation of people's basic mental health. Well, because so many queer people, especially because, you know, I started attending and, you know, people know about my lineage and like, literally, if I were to pop out, like if you had a bunch of lawyers in your family, pop out a lawyer, literally, by my bloodline, I would pop out a preacher. Like, that's just how <laughs> it would it would work out. But I go to church, and if a song really touches me, I might grab a clip of it. The girl who was singing on Sunday really just took me there, and I had to get, mm. like, I just had to share a little piece of it. But they have a version to it because their formative experiences wounded them that much that they don't want to have anything to do with it, whatever. If you say church, blah, religious institution, blah, spiritual institution, blah, Could that damage ever be repaired, do you think? 
I do think it can. But my question for you is you come out the chute, like you're, you're seconds old. Are you fundamentally whole or are you fundamentally flawed? When you are birthed, when you come into this dimension of reality, what are you? Are you innocent or are you instantly broken? I would say innocent by nature because babies are innocent. But then if my Sunday school Bible studies kicking in, for those of you who don't know, you know, the Bible says that we're born in sin and we're shaped in iniquity. And then an example that a preacher would use for that is like, you don't teach a baby to do bad. They just do it. You know, when a toddler misbehaves, they just do it. Like it's the natural impulse. And I have some aversion to that. You know, I I go back and forth on that because I do see your point. Yeah. And also like, what is bad? Like, and who is the arbiter of bad? So like, let's take that example. A toddler has a toy and then, and someone takes that toy from them and they hit them. Are they bad? Or are they just having like an impulse and part of their evolution and their development and growth as they get socialized is to realize like, you're probably not going to have a lot of friends if you hit people when they take things, but that yeah. doesn't make them fundamentally bad. Just means, oh, they're growing, they're learning. You know, if a child is learning to walk and they're toddling and they fall, we don't say you're bad. It's just this context of that's just very different from how I relate to reality. Like when my children make choices that have outcomes that create challenges or difficulty for them, I really trust that they are having exactly the right and necessary experience for their evolution, for their growth, for their awareness, for their awakening. I don't engage with it like, well, you know, that's really messed up. You're sort of a mess. You're sort of a disaster. But lots of parents do, by the way. Yeah. And that then forms people in pretty influential ways. Then what is the role of of your higher self, I would say, and up-leveling your consciousness, because in the Christian tradition, and that's the tradition, y'all, that I can speak from, is God is your ability to be awakened in this lifestyle, to while you're here on earth, to live the most fulfilling life, but also the promise of eternity. It's found through faith. It's found through Jesus Christ, and he paid the price for the remission of your sins. Like, that is the truth. How then does your higher self serve as a proxy in that way? Or can you even relate those side by side? So when you say that is the truth, you're saying that is the ideological supposition, right? Yes. Okay. And maybe that is your truth. Maybe that's No, I get I get what you're yeah. Yeah. I just think for listeners, it's important to underscore that. So I mean, you know, yeah, I just think we're existing at multiple dimensions of reality. And I think that Jesus was actually a beautiful example of that. He had so many mystical experiences that we misunderstood as literal experiences. And so, I mean, this is why people are doing things like ayahuasca and psilocybin. They're wanting to create an altered experience because we have actually lost touch with our native ability to create mystical and mysterious experiences for ourselves. We are so disconnected from our spiritual name and nature that we're like, okay, let me use this drug. And I'm not even, I'm not like anti-psychedelics. That's not the point, you know, but 
you actually can tap into multiple dimensions of reality and aspects of your being, your higher self, your essence, your God self, your spiritual name and nature, not only through psychedelics. And, you know, the more I can weave together and integrate my humanity and my divinity, the easier my walk on the planet becomes. And some of this is like, it must be felt because your mind can't really, to try to understand that cerebrally is too difficult. But you know, I imagine you have had consuming experiences in a sanctuary, in a church space, right? And usually I would guess they are underscored by music. Yes. Right. Because what does music do? It taps into another dimension of your being. We have over-indexed on the head up. We have over-identified with our thinking faculty, and we have lost connection with our heart and our gut. And what music does is it taps into your heart and your gut. Your mind stops. Your thinking mind stops. And something overcomes you. And that is the spiritual nature of existence. That is life itself. That is the amplifying and animating presence that moves and breathes and has its way in through and as you. So that is like, I want people to have more of that. And that's how you're able to, like you said, when we started this call, like, you know, seasons of transition that we're in as a world, and you're able to tap into that. You know, if you were on the Christian side, you'd be more of a prophet because you'd be tapping into the Holy Spirit that is giving you direction on what is going forward. Just comparing and contrasting the language that is used. Because I think that's overall the barrier. You know, if you look at Christianity, you know, you have Catholicism and then you have the Protestants. And then the Protestants, you have the Baptists, the Pentecostals, the Lutherans, the Presbyterians, the Methodists. And then within each of those, you have just flush of organizations and institutions that all vary in some very minuscule way when you really look back. And I think often if we can clarify language, then we can mm-hmm. come more together, then we can be further apart. But in, in 2020, 2021, uh, you stated in the intro of your podcast that at that time, humanity was in the midst of a heartbreaking and painful paradigm shift. And that is a good thing. And I'm asking you, now that we are in 2023, you know, can you speak more to where do you think we are, if not in the same place? I think that we are in a a sort of liminal space. I think we are not where we were and we're not yet where we're going to be. I think there's still a kind of like getting our sea legs. Okay. So, you know, you said this earlier, like in your church, there's a line to get in, you know, that's not true in most places. So they're doing something right. But I still don't know that we can say yet what is forthcoming. What is forthcoming in terms of culture and society? I mean, we're seeing this even in the employment market. People are not willing to do what they were willing to do two, three years ago. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So I don't think we've arrived anywhere yet, but I think there's a lot of like, well, let's try this. Let's try that. You know, we, my husband and I own a couple different businesses, one of which is a landscape design and build company. And it's a science experiment for us. Can we pay a living wage and will our clients pay the necessary rates so that people can actually live reasonably? I went to a a women's luncheon the other day and the whole thing was about pay equity. 
And, you know, everybody, everybody's like beating the drum of pay equity or pay parity, you know, so that there's, there's equity between what men are paid and what women are paid. And I'm for that. I'm obviously for that. My big question is, if we pay equitably, not just at the level of gender, but at the level of, you know, skills and labor and education, if we create a living wage for all human beings, that means the cost of your goods and services will go up. Are you, Miss Liberal Woman, who's beating the drum of pay equity, willing to pay more for your housekeeper? Are you willing to pay more for your nanny? Are you willing to pay more for your landscaping services? Or is this just a good headline and a good rally cry at a luncheon at a fancy hotel? Because people don't always understand what their drum lines actually mean in reality. Would you call it sensationalism? You kind of touched on this earlier where we see the headlines and we just go for the quick adrenaline rush from that uh, clickbait. Yeah, I think we don't like to do the hard work. We just want the quick hit. And I think that that's true even in a religious or spiritual context. I don't want to show up every week. I don't want to volunteer. I don't want to have to give financially, but I do want the community to be here and ready and available for me on my terms when I want it. And that is not reality. So if a spiritual community matters to you, it is your responsibility to show up powerfully and to be curious. What contribution do you need to make in order for this thing to exist? And what of those who are unaffiliated, but they also identify as agnostic, as atheist, and they're listening to this and they've just heard two fairly spiritual people talk a bit in the clouds, maybe from their perspective, what would you say to encourage them on their walk of life? Yeah, there's a book called Faithiest. And I had the author of that book speak at Bodhi once, and he's a self-identified atheist and studied, I think, at the Yale Divinity School, really, really brilliant. And at the end of his talk, I said, well, if that's what atheism is, apparently I'm atheist. And people were really, really upset. I mean, there were a handful of people that most people got it. There are a handful of people that were like, you got a few emails emails the next day. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And, you know, my experience with many atheists is that they are not suggesting that there isn't something vaster or greater. You know, they might articulate it as the cosmos, but like I've yet to meet someone who is so fatalistic that it's like, well, this is all you got. This miserable, short, life, you know, or something like There's that. Some of so, the best people I've met, I have to say, I was raised Pentecostal. So raised in a, in a background where it's like the atheist and the agnostic, you know, they, everybody needs Jesus. Everybody who's not yeah. us needs Jesus and you need to go and give it to them. And then growing up and I'm like, these are some of the best people around. They're kind of a blast. I find myself being usually the only Christian around. <laughs> yeah. Well, and oftentimes critical thinkers, which religious people are not always critical thinkers. And so I would like to see sort of a, a little balance return, you know, like what if you could really be thoughtful and inquisitive and challenge the assumptions of your dogma or your doctrine? That would be a great gift. Yeah. And it's why I wanted to have this conversation and conversations like these, because I think it's very important to have open discussion around our shared humanity. And that's one of the reasons why I started this podcast, because I wanted to have conversations with faith leaders like you Mm. around this idea of religiosity 
spirituality and where we all find ourselves in it. Because even the most unspiritual person, I bet their their funeral is going to be held in a church. If not in a church at a funeral home, I, there will be prayer said, you know, and there's this mysticism that goes mm-hmm. back to ancient times. We had a previous podcast episode where we talked about, you know, acting in archetypes specifically. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the myths that establish the archetypes and the stories that we tell today, that same framework. And I mm-hmm. think that we've been able to flesh some of this out in a little bit more detail. And I think we've made some people curious just to mm-hmm. ask more questions and to be more open about the possibilities that this life has for us. And I love what you brought to this conversation, Reverend Wright. Yeah, thank you. I mean, what I would leave people with is really just this offering that don't get too caught up in your head about it. As much as I invite critical thinking and challenging the status quo, the most beautiful aspect of faith is trusting in something greater than yourself. You know, one of my favorite scriptural references that I have interpreted my own kind of way is, I of my own self do nothing. It is the presence within that doeth the work. Now, a traditionalist would say it is the Father within that doeth the work. But I of my own self do nothing. It is the presence within that doeth the work. When I can surrender my will and my life over to the care of the infinite, of God, of spirit, as I understand it, something else becomes possible. I don't have to struggle. I don't have to muscle. You are not meant to grind it out in this reality. There really is a possibility of living a loving, joyous, free, and generous existence. And that's what the world needs more of. And on that note, I have nothing more to say. Thank you to the incredible Reverend Lola Wright for stopping by BC's Corner. If you want to connect with her and learn more about her philosophy and approach to living this great life we all get the opportunity to live, feel free to check out the link to her website and socials in the show notes. And as always, thank you all for listening. Your support means the world to me. And I'll see you soon. Whoa, whoa, whoa.